Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 5 this evening. Matthew 5. It's a little bit of a habit I've noticed I've picked up the older I get. Probably not a good habit, uh, at least the way that I do it. Uh, In fact, I'm kind of doing it right now. uh, Is that I tend to speak with a lot of qualifiers. Um, I can start a message and give you illustrations and start saying, well, you know, I'm going to tell you about something and I can give you lots of information. Every sitting there going like, what are we talking about? And I'll come home and I'll talk to Melinda and I'll say, oh, Melinda, I've got something I'm going to tell you and I just want you to think about it this way. And it's kind of like, just get to the point. Like, you don't have to give all these qualifiers. You may do it as well. You say, I I don't want you to think that I'm not, uh, I don't want to talk to you. It's just been really busy. I haven't been able to get back to you. Or I don't want you to think that I'm angry with you. It's just I'm really frustrated with circumstances. And we always put these qualifiers out there to try to help set the right mood. And we could ask the question, like, why is the qualifier being given? Is it because you presume that I'm just going to misunderstand you because you think that's the way that I am and I always misunderstand you? Or are you just doing that because you want to make sure we have a really good conversation and so you're just taking the burden? Like, what are you communicating with your qualifier? We come to Matthew chapter 5 and the text in front of us in verses 17 to 20, and Jesus begins with a qualifier. He tells those who are listening to him, I don't want you to think this way. Instead, I want you to understand this truth. And I think as we walk through the text, we'll see that the reason he gives this qualifier is in their cultural context, there is a real propensity, a real possibility that they're going to misunderstand what he's doing and lump him with a group of people that he is very different altogether. Let me remind you of where we've been. We walked through the Beatitudes, reminding ourselves of those who God blesses. And then most recently, last week, we spent time looking at the illustrations of your identity as a disciple to go, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are to influence this world around us as both salt and light, preserving flavoring, benefiting, guiding, directing, enlightening as salt and light in this world. And we move from those illustrations pointing to our identity as disciples to then an imperative in verse 16, our responsibility as disciples, that we are to engage this world to let our light shine before men so that they would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. As we come to verse 17, we begin a new section within the sermon, and we might look at it this way. Having looked at their identity as disciples and this imperative for them as disciples, we now come to our interaction with the law. For us, this might be far removed because we haven't lived under the Mosaic law, but in that culture at that time to begin to understand, okay, Jesus is a teacher, often teaching religious people, sometimes even teaching in religious settings, and saying, now here's your interaction with this law of Moses. As we look at that interaction, let's begin with the first part of verse 17, looking at, in fact, let me just read the text for us since we didn't read it this morning, uh, verse, starting in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, for I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we look at the first part of verse 17, we can view it as a prohibition. A prohibition, he's that qualifier again where he says, okay, don't think this way. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. In referencing the law and the prophets, Jesus appears to be speaking of the entire Old Testament. Within the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible's divided really into three parts. We tend to look at it and go Old Testament and New Testament in large sections. And then after that, we break it down into even more sections beyond that to go, these are books of poetry and these are prophets and these are historical books and these are the Torah or the uh, Pentateuch or the books of the law. But really, in the Hebrew Bible, they look and go, okay, we have the law and we have the prophets and the writings and then we have the Psalms. And it seems within the culture of that day that it was just very customary to speak and go the law and the prophets, speaking of the entirety of what we today would call the Old Testament. And so he tells them, do not allow yourself to think that when it comes to the Old Testament, I am coming to destroy it. And that word destroy speaks of dismantling or tearing down. You know what, let's just deconstruct all of these things that God put into place that really were very good. I, we've talked about it before, but I love the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that reminds us in God giving the law and God revealing himself through the prophets, it was glorious to mankind. It was merciful to mankind. And so Jesus wants them to understand. He doesn't want any possible misperceptions. He wants them to understand he's not undermining the law. In fact, it'll take us a couple weeks to work through it, but as you get from verse 21 all the way through verse 48, if anything, Jesus is actually heightening the law, not at all undermining the law, because he's going to take the standard of the law and say, okay, you've heard that it's been said, but I say unto you, and always when he says, I say unto you, the standard is raised. This prohibition is very important in Jesus' day, certainly important in our day as well, but important in Jesus' day because of what the Pharisees and other religious leaders were doing with the law. Kind of grabbing parts of it to their convenience and even fleshing it out in very advanced ways to, to take it further and go, let's apply it this way and this way and this way and to make it very tedious, again, turning it into the tradition of men instead of the law of God. But on the other hand, there are points, we'll look at one very briefly later, where the Pharisees undermine the law and say, well, yeah, the law says this, but if you do these things, then it's okay, and you can just kind of ignore it. And so Jesus is setting himself apart as a teacher, saying, don't think that I'm coming to tear down the law or the prophets. Having given that prohibition, let's look secondly at the clarification at the end of verse 17. What is he doing then? And he says, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That word to fulfill is a common word in the New Testament. We've talked about it before, but it means to complete or to fill full. I kind of laughed thinking about it because it was just a couple weeks ago. I sat down at the dinner table, didn't really even look at what was in front of me. Someone in our family had set the table, did a really good job, filled all the glasses with water. It was great. And I sat down, I picked my glass up, not even like looking to see like how full is it. 
And I don't think I got it more than a third off the table, and I was wearing water uh, at that point because I spilled all over myself. I don't know if it was filled to the full, but it was close. It was not like, you know, hey, there's a little bit of room at the top. You know, we talk about filling to the full a cup, and it's like that surface tension, the often used illustration where you add another drop and it's going to come over the side. There's nothing else that fits. And so Jesus is going to say, when it comes to the law, I am going to fill it completely full. There is nothing that is going to be missing. There is nothing more that can be added. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm not come to destroy or tear down or dismantle the law, but to fill it full? I think there are three senses in which we can rightly understand Jesus' words here. And I will just remind you that Jesus said in Matthew 3 verse 15 to John the Baptist, it was important for him to fulfill all righteousness or to demonstrate the complete fullness of here's what right living before God looks like. So on the one hand, first, we would say that Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets means he obeyed it for his own righteousness. We can't be like, we can't run past that too quickly. Well, yeah, Jesus is God and we know Jesus never sinned. Like practically speaking, day to day, Jesus had to do completely right before God and man to fulfill the law so that he could be our sinless, absolutely righteous, perfect substitute for sin. So when Jesus says he's not come to destroy but to fulfill the law, understand he did fulfill it himself in his behavior, obeying it for his own righteousness. But secondly, he demonstrated it for all to see. He lived it out so that for those present, it's like what does living according to the law look like They could behold it in Jesus Christ. In fact, with a tremendous irony, we walk through the Gospels at points and the religious leaders are looking at Jesus going, you can't do that. You just healed somebody on the Sabbath. Like, no way, Mark chapter 2, like you, or Mark chapter 3 rather, you can't tell that guy with a hand that, that he's to be healed. Like, that's not allowed. That's work on the Sabbath. And Jesus has to remind them, no, it's about who is Lord of the Sabbath that man, uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? To go, you know what? He's God. He can do that as he wants. He demonstrates. Here's what fulfillment of the law looks like. He illustrates it as well. But third, as Jesus says that he's not come to destroy but to fulfill, we'd say not only did he obey it for his own righteousness and demonstrate it for all to see, he fulfilled its promises regarding the Messiah. By the end of Jesus' life, this becomes even more clear. He says it very directly in Luke 24, verse 44. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 24, 44. He says to the disciples, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, there's our word again, that all things must be fulfilled which were in the law of Moses and in the prophets, same two categories again, and in the Psalms, there's your third category, concerning me. Like, that's a profound statement, particularly in that day, for Jesus to be saying, I've told you and I'm telling you again, all of these things, whether you're in the law, whether you're in the prophets, whether you're in the Psalms, were about me. Because he fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the Old Testament, giving it meaning because he is that promised Messiah who would come. Jesus, because he came to fulfill the law in his own righteousness, demonstrating it for others, 
and fulfilling those promises of God will forever change people's relationship to the law and the prophets. We look even today, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40 paints the picture as well, but we look even today not going, well, someday the Messiah will come and he will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace is upon him and with his stripes will be healed. We look back and say, it already happened. Hebrews 11, talking about those Old Testament saints, says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises but God having provided some better thing for us. Because we look back, we run our race looking back to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So our relationship is forever changed to the prophets. But then we think about the law and we realize our relationship to the law has forever changed because Christ fulfilled the law. As Romans 10 will say, Christ is the end of the law to all that believe. Because now we are under the law of Christ, him having fulfilled the law on our behalf. So the law will in no way bring salvation for sin. Instead, it will reveal the character of God and for the unbeliever, uh, point to the need for salvation in Christ. It'll be that Galatians 3 schoolmaster. Having considered the prohibition and the clarification, notice third, the duration of the law as Jesus speaks in verse 18. He says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. We could look at it as here's the veracity of his words because Jesus begins by saying, For verily. That word verily, if we were just to look up the word behind it, is amen. Like for him to say, This is true. And then beyond the veracity of his words, I would have you note the authority of Jesus' word. And Again, this is something we could almost presume because we tend to read with 21st century Christian eyes and going, well, of course, Jesus was God. But imagine being there that day as he's teaching, as people are evaluating him, not having seen all of his miracles, not having the entire 27 books of the New Testament. And he says, for verily, I say unto you, and he proceeds to teach them. He teaches with authority. In fact, that becomes the response of people at the end. To go, this one is different. He teaches with authority. But importantly for us as we look at the duration of the laws, the totality of God's words, he says, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He's saying God will completely fulfill. God will completely give meaning to all that has been written. There is no part of what God has promised or what God has required that he will not fulfill. Some of it, a lot of it, he has already fulfilled through his son Jesus Christ in his first coming. Some of it we still wait going, he will fulfill in his second coming. Because you know, there's no way that God's words will not last until all has been fulfilled. You may know he points to different aspects of the Hebrew letters to say, it doesn't matter, not even the smallest part. And we often look at it and go, see, God does work to preserve his word till it's fulfilled. The jot is like the Hebrew word is more yod. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If you were looking at the Hebrew alphabet, it almost looks like a little comma. It's very small. It's like not any part of that will disappear till all has been fulfilled. When you get to the tittle, it's an even smaller part. It distinguishes two letters from each other within the Hebrew alphabet. It's just like a little tail. 
Uh, the closest I can think of is like the dot on our eye, just to like dot the little eye and have that dot missing that you got lost points for in penmanship. Okay, he's like, no small little mark like that is going to disappear. God will preserve his word, and God will require his words until all of it has been completed and demonstrated, filled full. Having considered the prohibition and clarification, the duration, notice the caution given in verse 19. The caution in verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we kind of get ourselves worked up in mental knots sometimes with this verse going, okay, well, so, so if I disobey the law, um, am I somehow now lower in the kingdom? But if I do it, then I, I earn status. And there is certainly a principle of reward in heaven for believers not judgment of eternal condemnation. That's the great white throne for unbelievers. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 3, there is a principle of reward for works. And yet I think what's more in view here is the context of that day, again, to realize there were religious leaders at that time teaching men, hey, you know, here's how you work around obedience to God's law. For sake of time, I won't turn there this evening. You can turn there if you'd like, but if you're in Matthew chapter 15, it's the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, particularly with their view of what it means to honor mother and father. Something we ought to just take simply at face value and go, the scripture says that honor is to be given to mother and father. And they say, well, you know, if you come around and you provide this gift, then it's okay. And Jesus there in Matthew chapter 15 says to them um, that they have made the law null or void through their tradition. In fact, the exact language there says they're making the law of none effect by their tradition. You're trying to cancel it out. So it fits very well with what Jesus says in Matthew 5.19. Whosoever breaks the law and teaches people to do so is called least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Pharisees graded different aspects of the law, we understand historically, to go, this law is important, this one is not important. The way they termed them were these were heavy and these were light. These are the big offenses and these are the little offenses. And Jesus is making a clear rebuttal against their teaching. In fact, just again, cast your mind forward in the text where he goes next to go, you have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. And as he walks through those commands, there's no way... He's actually lightening the load at all. Some of us walk through those at points and we're confronted with the teaching. And we're like, no, is Jesus really saying that I have to turn the other cheek and show that kind of kindness to enemies? I'm not sure I can do that. Like, that's an incredibly high standard. Because again, Jesus is always increasing what our, our standard is to be. His caution here directly addresses the behavior of the scribes and Pharisees of his day. He prioritizes the law. He upholds the law. But very thankfully is the word he actually used himself. He fulfills the law. That leads us to our next thought, this final point that becomes even more important. Because when we see the law and we realize this isn't something that we can tear down and just do away with, this is something that we should uh, see God's character represented in and it sets a standard of righteousness for us, 
and we realize I'm never going to make it. He goes there in verse 20. Here's the application in verse 20 of his teaching. It says, righteousness is required to be in God's kingdom. So you can't undermine the law. Jesus is going to fulfill the law. But righteousness is required to be with him. He says, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. There's that contextual reminder. We haven't seen it this directly yet in the text, but Jesus is very direct at this point. to go. You know what? Scribes and Pharisees, they may teach and undermine the law, but please understand that unless you're better than they are, you'll never in any way see the kingdom of heaven. If we're not clear on that, we've talked through this before, but Jesus goes through all those laws, ups the standard, and then at the end he comes to Matthew 5, verse 48, and says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. To go, your righteousness has to be better than the scribes and Pharisees, so let's talk about some laws here, and now understand, you've got to be perfect or you won't be in heaven with your Father who is perfect. Again, that should leave us with a weight of impossibility. Definitively should in Jesus' day. To go, I'll never make it. Like We talk law and prophets. Let's just go law for a moment. You remember there are those 613 laws. Like Sometimes, sadly, we struggle to go, now what are the Ten Commandments? We shouldn't, but 613 laws? Because your righteousness has to be better than these religious leaders, or you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the wonderful truth for us is that statement that Jesus didn't come to tear it down, he actually came to fulfill it. When we read through the rest of the New Testament, we begin to realize what that fulfillment looks like. That fulfillment looks like Jesus' fulfillment of the law, Jesus' righteousness being given to those who believe on him. So that as I've already alluded to in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, we can realize Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. Or we can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 or Hebrews chapter 8 to look and go, here is that old covenant under Moses that people broke over and over and over and over again. And so what did God do? He made a new covenant. And what, what is part of that new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3? He says, I'm going to write in man's hearts. I'm not going to write on stones anymore. It's not going to be this external law that rules you. It's going to be this internal spirit that indwells you and enables you to obey me. I want to give you a few thoughts as we consider. So, so what is my relationship to the law now? And kind of build these out and Admittedly, we've walked through this before, and I'm going to throw a lot of Scripture passages at you, Um, but I I do believe it's important for us to understand that that old covenant of law was important, was to be upheld, but Jesus did come to fulfill it so that we are not under the law any longer. Whether you're in Romans 3, 20 to 28, or Romans 5, 20 to 21, or already Romans 10, 4, or 2 Corinthians 3, or Hebrews 8, Or we could go to Galatians, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, to realize we're not under the law, but we are under the law of Christ. It's that idea, Galatians 5.1, we're told, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What's the yoke of bondage in context? 
It's the law. What does he say then? Verse 13, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. He points the fulfillment in that same text of the law as loving those around us. In fact, it's over and over and over again. In the New Testament, the law is restated as loving God and loving others. Whether you're in Romans 13 or Galatians 5 or James 2.8, John 13, Matthew 22, to summarize the law. See, Jesus emphasized man's desperate situation before the law to go, you're not going to make it. Here's, here's the standard that's required for fellowship with God. You've got to meet that standard. You've got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And we don't meet that. So it condemns us in our sin. It's our schoolmaster, Galatians 3, will say, to bring us to repentance in verse 24. Again, we can walk through the New Testament and see that it does release believers many times from obeying laws. You go to Colossians chapter 2 to go, let no man therefore judge you. And it points to categories of the law because we're set free from that. Why then do we have the law? Well, we say Romans 15, 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, for our admission, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Or 2 Timothy 3, that we would have this, that the man of God would be perfect, truly furnished unto God, every good work. Give you very quickly six concluding thoughts as to why we have the law today, what the law's role is today. The law that Jesus fulfilled still reveals God's character. You realize God cares about every little detail. Like even to read through in the law as to how God constructed the tabernacle, how God constructed the, tabern, uh, the tabernacle, then the temple, to realize there are these boundaries set to realize unless I am right with God, unless blood has atoned for my sin, I cannot be in his presence because God is holy. So it reveals God's character. Certainly, as we go to the law, whether Romans 3.20, Romans 7.7-19, or Galatians 3.24, the law not only reveals God's character, it reveals man's need. To go, I am a sinful person. I do break God's law. Not only reveals God's character and man's need, it justifies God's judgment. The law indicts us, and it justifies God's judgment. To go, you're wrong. Here's the law. You don't measure up. So judgment is warranted. The law does provide principles forth regarding appropriate love for God and others. Leviticus 19.18 gets repeated in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, Deuteronomy 11.1, like Over and over we can go to the law and see, here's what love looked like under the law. And then we go to the New Testament and he says, on these hang all the law and the prophets. You love God and you love others. So what does it look like? For me to love people the way that God would have me to. I think in light of 1 Timothy 1 verses 8 through 10, fifth thought is that the law provides principles that restrain evil. I think our society, our culture has recognized that over time to go, let's put the Ten Commandments on a courthouse. Let's remind ourselves of these moral principles to restrain evil. But 1 Timothy 1 points out that the law is for the punishment of evildoers. And ultimately, I've already alluded to this one before, but the important aspect of the law, sixth, is to bring us to Christ. 
Romans three, or Galatians three twenty two to twenty five. That schoolmaster to bring us to repentance. To go, if that's the law, if that's really the standard, I'll never measure up. My righteousness won't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, but I definitely won't be perfect, even as the Father in heaven is perfect. To be able to go, I need someone else. Christ here says he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Thankfully that by faith on him, we could be declared righteous. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. That while the law was holy, was good, was glorious, you saw fit to do something even more merciful and glorious through your son, Jesus Christ. That as he filled the law, we could be declared right by faith and his finished work alone. Lord, I pray on that basis we would be motivated to live for you, to fulfill the heart of the law in loving you and loving others around us. God, we thank you that you've given us the spirit even to that end. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.